You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. A hundred years ago, if you were an African American in the Jim Crow South, life felt like a dead end. You felt like a, a second class citizen because you were the help. Or you were a sharecropper who, no matter how hard you worked or how productive you became, could never seem to get out of debt because of the unjust scales. But there came a moment in history where black Southerners received a glimmer of hope because they heard that they could experience a new type of life, a new type of freedom. There came a time when they heard of the opportunity to make enough money where they could not only support themselves, but could support their people and their extended family. But it was scary for them to think about moving away from the only home they had ever known to go into a foreign place in search of something better. It was unsettling to think of uprooting and going to a place completely foreign to them. Yet, at some point, they would take the risk and begin the journey. They would break with the oppression of the Jim Crow South and embark on a new life in the industrialized North. Yes, there were many challenges and difficulties on the journey, but the hope was too compelling to give up. In her New York Times bestseller, The Warmth of Other Suns, Isabel Wilkerson tells the story of what is known as the Great Migration, where hundreds of thousands of African Americans migrated from the Jim Crow South into the cities of the Northeast, the Midwest, and the West. And what I love about Isabel Wilkerson's book is that she doesn't just tell the story of the Great Migration from the 30,000-foot view. She actually makes it very human and personal by focusing the story of the Great Migration on three particular families and their lives as they made the Great Migration to the North. This is how she shows what it was really like and what was really involved in making that move from the South to the North. And our text for today, it actually tells a similar kind of story. After detailing the beauty and the flourishing in the creation, after showing us the dignity and the purpose of humanity, we witness the downward spiral of the world following the introduction of sin and the curse into the world. A 30,000-foot view of the world shows us a deep brokenness and corruption and a bondage and an injustice that fills the earth. But in this passage, the narrator zooms in on one moment in history where the call of God goes out to one man and his family, giving us one of salvation's greatest hits. If you haven't been with us, we're working through a series called Salvation's Greatest Hits, Volume 1, where we are looking at key scenes in the Old Testament that, that, illuminate our understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ, 
but also give insight and depth and character and contour to our spirituality. Because we don't need to pick our spirituality out of thin air. We don't have to make it up as we go. We have the most glorious and healthy version of of a spirituality given to us as the biblical text shines light on who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and why he came to do it. It shows us what matters for our own lives. And in our passage for today, we see the hinge of God's story where blessing will be channeled not just to a particular man and his family, but through a particular man and his family to be spread to all the families of the world. We're going to see how this text leads us to Christ and shapes our spirituality. And we're going to approach this text through two points this morning, where we consider the call of God and the commitment of God. Those are two points, the call of God and the commitment of God. So let's take a look at our first point where we see the call of God. In Genesis chapters 3 through 11, we see the downward spiral of humanity. We move on from Adam and Eve and their their turn away from the Lord, and immediately things escalate. We move from disobedience to the word of God to fratricide. And then, and then we get the, the further development uh, where things just get worse and worse. Humanity gets more and more evil, more and more chained by their sin. And what happens in Genesis chapters 3 through 11 is we get the repetition of this phrase where it continues to emphasize death. You'll get the, the so-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and then he died, and he died, and he died. It's underscoring something very important that takes place in the fall. It gets worse and worse till we get to chapter 6, and we see great wickedness over all the earth, and God judges the earth with a flood. And we come to Babel, the, the story of Babel. Which, if you have never heard uh, that story preached before, it's really about God condemning and breaking up the self-salvation project of humanity. They wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted to build a tower to the heavens. They believed that they could breach the gap between heaven and earth. And God judges their activity, their self-salvation project. And that brings us to chapter 11. There's an important dynamic, however, that's at work in this leading context for our passage for today. We need to see that in chapter 11, something significant is going on here. After the flood, God begins again with Noah. All right. God begins again with Noah after the flood. And there is this one ray of hope that is offered in God's economy where he picks one man to continue the, the line of the woman, right? If you remember back to Genesis chapter 3, 15, there is hope given in the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, who will crush the head of the serpent. There's this single family line, and, and, and Noah is, is picked by God to be the continuation of that important line of God, the godly strain. And Noah's son, Shem, knew the Lord, By the way, it's where you get Semite, Shemite, 
right? Comes from this son of Noah. And this was to be the line that would show the glory of God, that, that would return to the original purpose that God set out for humanity. To show who it was that reigned in this place and to represent him in the world. The, the knowledge of the true God was preserved and passed on through Shem. But here's the thing. By the time the genealogy of Shem unfolds and we arrive at the, the account of Terach, things have gone very wrong, y'all. Things have gone very wrong. The evidence of the text shows us that by the time we get to Terach, this one ray of hope has gone dim. And this is expressed in Terach's name. Because Terach was a name after the Mesopotamian moon god. In other words, by the time we get to this point in the development of the family line, there is idolatry. And this is further con confirmed and expressed in their location. Ur of the Chaldeans was a center of lunar worship in the ancient Near East. This last family, the last hope, has gone over to idolatry. And this is also further confirmed by the fact that after they move from Ur, they go to Haran, which was another center of lunar worship. And the end of the book of Joshua actually informs our read of this text here. Because at the end of the book of Joshua, it further confirms that the people, quote, lived beyond the river and worshipped other gods. This is the context that we have here. The last godly family in the narrative has now lost their grip on the true God, and they have exchanged the truth of God for the lies of idolatry. They have completely capitulated to the ways of their surrounding culture and society, and they're living in the same dark state as the rest of the world. One commentator says that the barrenness of Sarah in verse 30 is, quote, an effective metaphor for hopelessness. There is no foreseeable future. There is no human power to invent a future. The human race and human history has hit a dead end. And to punctuate this hopelessness, the narrator tells us that death is haunting this family. Did you see it? Abram's brother Haran dies. And by the time we get to the end of chapter 11, his father dies. He's surrounded by death. He's surrounded by hopelessness. They are in idolatry. His wife is barren. Children were your security at the time and your protection at the time. Things could not look more bleak in the human family. But it's in this context of idolatry and barrenness and hopelessness and death that the Lord acts. It's in that context. The Lord calls Abram in verse 1. The Lord breaks through in his light. It's just like a, 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 an illustration of what we talked about last week. The light. God says, let there be light for humanity again. He speaks in calling Abram. At the beginning of this story of Genesis we see that just as God calls the world into existence, he now, in chapters 11 and 12, calls his people into existence. But there are some important ideas to draw from this call. And I'm going to limit myself to two. 
Okay? I'm going to limit myself to two. I didn't mean to go an hour last week, okay? <laughs> what I'm trying to say is I'm sorry. Don't run away. It won't always be like this, all right? I just got to keep you off balance, all right? <laughs> Joe calls me. He's like, guess how long your sermon? I was like, long, brother, long. I know it's long. I felt it. It's an accident. See what had happened with. No, I'm kidding. All right. Two important points I want to draw here that I want to bring your attention. First, in this call of God, we see the extraordinary grace of God. We learn this from the context we just covered. It was a terrible mess of difficulties. But the Lord is not intimidated or deterred by the mess. Have you ever gotten the impression from some people's picture of God that God really isn't interested in getting in your mess? Like God isn't, doesn't want to be bothered with people who got messy situations and confusing circumstances and things that are just what we would call a hot mess. That covers a lot of things. Have you ever gotten that impression from God? Have you ever gotten that impression about God from other Christians? I want to let the record of Genesis correct that. God is not intimidated or deterred by the mess. Neither the sin of idolatry, the heartache of childlessness, the despair of hopelessness, nor the sting of death keeps the Lord from entering in. He is the fireman who runs toward the burning building. He is the doctor who moves toward the sick and wounded patient. He is the search and rescue team who goes after the lost. This passage is a remarkable character witness for the Lord, helping us to get a sense of who he is and what he's like. And what we see is grace from top to bottom. Full strength grace undiluted. I want you to see in this passage, and this corrects a lot of popular theology. Notice in this passage, nobody is looking for the Lord or calling on him. Nobody is meeting the Lord halfway. God is not helping those who help themselves. I need to stop right there. All right? God does not help those who help themselves. God helps those who hurt themselves by helping themselves. <laughs> helping ourselves is what got us into this mess in the first place. God does not help those who help themselves. We don't see him helping those who help themselves in this picture. God isn't waiting for anybody to clean themselves up or turn over a new leaf. God is not waiting for anyone to come to realizations. God isn't waiting for anyone to give him permission. The Lord is the sovereign king who takes the initiative to turn it all around. The redemptive plan, the initiative, the decision, the call, they all begin with God. Which is to say that God's community begins in grace, it continues in grace, and it ends in grace. What is sufficiently clear in this passage is that if God does not take the initiative... Humanity remains hopelessly stuck in a downward spiral. That's clear in the narrative. If you read from Genesis chapter 3 to Genesis chapter 11, and there is no call of God, it just gets deeper. The brokenness gets deeper. The pain gets broader and wider. This is, this is what we would have, but that's not what we got. God calls. He calls out. This is a foundational truth in a foundational passage. 
Second, so that's the, that's the first thing I want you to see about the call of God. We see the extraordinary grace of God. But second, we see the extraordinary heart of God. God wants something unimaginably better for Abraham and his family and his future descendants and all the world. God wants better for him. In his call to Abram, the Lord promises a nomad a homeland, a place of belonging. The Lord promises a barren couple countless offspring that they'll become a nation. He promises this man who is bearing the effects of the curse that he will bless him. In fact, the word bless is used five times in this passage. Do you know why? Commentators will tell you, biblical commentators will tell you, that the reason why bless is used five times in chapter 12 is because the word curse was used five times in Genesis 3 through 11. So it shows you that everything that has taken place in the curse is about to be rolled back by the blessing of God. Do you know that when God's blessing rests on your life, nobody can curse you? Nobody can hold you back or hold you down. You're right where he wants you. Regardless of what the circumstances are, you're right where he wants you to do the great work that he wants to do in your life. Abram couldn't see it all at that point. Remember, from the vantage point of this nomadic family, out of nowhere, Yahweh, the Lord, says, go from your place. Sorry, what? Excuse me? Who are you? I don't know what is happening here. Right? Think about it. But. There's something important that happens in this text. He recognizes something about the faithfulness of God. He recognizes something about the character of God, the plan of God. In other words, the salvation of God is perfectly suited to his actual needs. It's perfectly suited. We can keep going around on that, but the blessing pushes back the curse. And Abram's response of faith, I want you to hear me on this. Abram's response of faith is simultaneously a renunciation of control. I'm going to say that again. Abram's response of faith is simultaneously a renunciation of being in control. Everything about this narrative is telling us that the way of faith is the way of renouncing control over things. Control over the affairs of your life. Control over your children. Now, discipline and control are two different things, right? <laughs> needing to control outcomes. Needing to control what other people think of you. Needing to control how your career develops. Needing to just trying to micromanage God. Faith is the renunciation of trying to control things. And that's what we see And Abraham, because he recognizes the glory and the faithfulness and the wisdom of God in that call. And what's, I think, profound here is that ultimately the blessing that the Lord has in mind for Abram is so overwhelmingly abundant that it cannot be given within his lifetime, but will spill over into the rest of history throughout the generations. Do you realize God's blessing is so significant, so profound, that it cannot be contained in one person's lifetime? It's that abundant. And how often are we content to settle for the crumbs, to ask for crumbs, to ask for things that are so far beneath the dignity of God's power to bless, of God's heart to bless? You see God's heart here, what he wants for Abram? Do you see 
this is a picture of the fact that God wants good for your life more than you do. God wants your flourishing more than you do. You're not more invested in your well-being than God is. God is more invested in your flourishing. He's more invested in your peace. He's more invested in your happiness. But when his ways come into conflict with what makes sense to you, that's where the battle of faith really begins. But we see it played out here in Abram. God's intent to bless does not mean that Abram doesn't come through challenges and difficulties in his narrative, as we're going to get to next week. But what it does mean is none of the challenges, the sufferings, the pains, the afflictions, none of that is going to derail God's plan in his life and God's love for him. God's heart is to undo every bit of the curse by the power of his blessing. And as Israel, now think about this. It's often easy to forget that the original audience of the book of Genesis and all uh, the, the, the Pentateuch, Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The original audience of this book was a freshly freed community of Israelites that had just come out of slavery. They had not been long out of slavery, not long coming through the desert and eating manna from heaven and water from a rock. They are reading this story, and you know what they're thinking? Our very existence is proof positive of God's sure promises. Their entire existence is the result of a promise kept. And not only this, they're also being reminded of the fact that God's redeeming love and all of his benefits have come to them through union with Abraham. I'm going somewhere. All of the benefits that came to Israel came through their union with Abraham. It was their connection to him that brought them all of the Lord's benefits and his redeeming love. Which brings us to our next point, the commitment of God. The text shows us that the Lord has not given up on any of the plans that he set out in the creation narrative, which we covered last week. If you weren't here, you can go listen to it online. God has not given up on any of that plan. However, what is absolutely critical for us to understand is that the Lord anchors those plans. He grounds those plans in one man. How has this redemption, this salvation, this blessing come to Israel? Through one man and their union with him. And what is sufficiently clear in the rest of scripture is that this union with Abraham is a faith union. It is a faith union with Abraham. Verse 3. When God calls Abram and makes his promises to Abram, he offers this critical statement that shows you his purpose and the result of his blessing. He says at the very end, In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Many of the children of those migrants who left the Jim Crow South did not realize that the reason why they could experience life without Jim Crow was because someone in their family was willing to go. 
Someone in their family was willing to uproot from the life they knew. Someone was willing to be alienated from their homeland. Someone was willing to endure the difficult transition to provide a better future, not just for themselves, but for the whole family. And my friends, the beauty of this picture does not just lead us back to Abraham. It leads us beyond Abraham. Because there was one greater than Abraham who didn't just leave his country, he left his throne. Jesus Christ, the one greater than Abraham, left his father's house in response to the call of God. Through him, the father would fulfill his promise of making a great nation. He would make his name great. He would bless those who bless the Lord Jesus and curse those who curse him. This promise comes true in Jesus so that those who were helpless and hopeless, those who were in darkness, those who were idolaters surrounded by death could receive the blessing and the hope of God. This is the commitment of God. The whole story of God is is doing this, pointing to Jesus. Never go into a biblical passage and make the direct connect to your own life bypassing Jesus. That is not how you explain the scriptures to make yourself the hero of the story. Jesus is the hero of the story and the text never makes its way to your life until it comes through him. He's the fulfillment and so in union with him, you get all the benefits, you get all the fulfillment, you get the joy, you get the peace. He is the mediator of a new covenant. And that is the beauty of this text. Abraham being told that in him all the families of the earth would be blessed is, is a glimmer, is a picture, a beautiful picture of the father saying to the son, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. It's all about Jesus. But how should we expect this text to shape our spirituality as I close? I'm going to just bullet point a few quick ones. One, if God is the kind of Savior who takes initiative to bless us and to do us good, then we ought to be the kind of community that takes the initiative to bless others and do them good. There is a lot of good that's waiting to be done that often doesn't get accomplished because of passivity or busyness. We can prioritize so that we can take initiative to do others good. Just start small. Start with the people you live with. Start with your little block, your neighborhood. Take initiative to do good. Two, we get into the mess. We don't conceal it or avoid it. Now, this is important on this day where we just uh, ordained, uh, installed, and, and gave commissions to new leadership in this church. One of the things you need to know about the leadership of this church is that we're not going to conceal the mess, and we're not going to avoid the mess either. If there's any people on the planet that ought to be able to honestly say, there's a mess here. There's a mess in my life, and I need, I need help to deal with the mess. It's us. And if there's any community on the face of the planet that ought to be ready to jump into the mess with other people in love without the need to look down our nose or, or be self-righteous about it, like, because we know that a similar mess is we either just came out of a similar mess or we're on our way into a similar mess, right? Or we're in it right now, right? It's us. We don't conceal the mess. We don't avoid it. Because God doesn't. 
Three, we renounce our desire to control things. That's what faith looks like. (laughs) We renounce our desire to control things. Now, let me say, this is not dropping our responsibilities or becoming passive or disengaged or resigned. Rather, it's wisely discerning the difference between God's work and my work, between God's part and my part. You can't change your coworker's heart or your spouse's heart. That's God's work. But your work is to love and serve and bless and pray, support, speak words of life, show up, be present. All of those things, that, that's, that's our part. So, so what we're talking about in, in, in renouncing the need to control everything is walking in repentance when we notice our blood pressure getting higher when things feel out of control because they're not out of control to God. Let his gentle and gracious exposure of your control freak, inner control freak, to be exposed, repent, and say, he's got it in control. That's not a throwaway line. God is in control. That's the best news you ever heard. He's in control. Because if you see the heart of this God who's in control, if you see how he's disposed toward his people, look, no matter what calamities are in your life, if God is making cosmic salvation out of Good Friday, he's taking any and all kind of suffering and doing his work of redemption in it. That is your interpretive grid as a Christian. It's yours, free of charge. If God is doing that kind of work on Good Fridays, then what? Hey, I'm going to sit back and watch him show off. This ain't even close to a Good Friday. So God, this is nothing. This is light work, right? This is brush your shoulders off. Easy. God can be trusted. Fourth and finally, this text ought to lead us to confidence and hope in our suffering and in the messes of life because God has come even closer to us than he came to Abram. God came to identify with us in Jesus Christ. God knows your sufferings. He appreciates and feels your afflictions. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says he is uniquely suited to be your your great and faithful high priest, to bear you on his heart before the Father. He carries you. Even now he's praying for you. That's astonishing. So let us just receive this story, this picture, as one of salvation's greatest hits. He is the God who calls. He is the God who gives. He is the God who cares. And God is blessing all of his people and all of the families of the earth in Christ. So let us never diminish him. Let us never find our hearts embarrassed of him. Let us never be ashamed to hold up the name of Christ because there's nobody like Jesus. No one. Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.